it would involve the military for defense. Okay. It would involve fire departments for fire suppression and rescue and building collapse. Okay. It would likely involve EMS if there were survivors. And it would be one of the biggest events that I've probably seen in my career by far. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. So you're writing about a mass emergency. Is it an alien invasion? Nuclear fallout? How about a zombie outbreak? Well, if you're looking for resources, you're in for a treat. Writer and former firefighter Thomas Layton joins the podcast to talk about emergency responders. What does a mass emergency response really look like? Is it anything like we see in the movies? We'll discuss all this and more. Okay, so Thomas, I'm really excited about this conversation. I was looking forward to it a lot because I'm going to be pulling from both of my work hats, I guess you can say, to contribute to this. So I come from local government emergency communications. Um, I get involved in any mass emergency type of situation and uh, FEMA trained and all that stuff. And then you have a firefighting background. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I went full time. Um, I started out at 16 as a explorer and then by 18 i got my emt card and then eventually my firefighter certificate so by 20 i was full-time paid and i retired at 42 so i spent 22 years full-time paid awesome and how many times do you think that could you even count how many times you've been out for like fire emergencies or rescue situation oh thousands of times Okay. I, I've lost count. I used to do, when I was working in metro areas, I would do probably 18 runs uh, in 48 hours. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Off the top of your head, what can you think of maybe what was the most bizarre call you've ever been on or, or interesting call? The most bizarre call I've ever been on was I went to a call where a child had gotten his foot stuck in a toilet oh. and we had to move the toilet from the upper corner of the house and of course there's wall-to-wall carpeting and somebody had clogged the toilet and not flushed that so we had to take the toilet out of the floor and move it outside to the ambulance and then the child's mom gets home and said what's going on and I made the off-color comment of I would call somebody to shampoo your carpets <gasps> and she did not find that funny I mean it's true <laughs> yeah I told her not to go in there and she did and she was really really angry that we had to remove the toilet and move it outside well, it, and I'm sure like in an emergency situation like that you're not removing a toilet the way maybe a plumber might remove a toilet yeah, um, actually we did. We took it out with the bolts. Wow. So the equipment and everything, you guys are able to remove it. 
Absolutely. Wow. Yes, we are trained in basics of plumbing and electrical work as part of our jobs. That's really interesting. And at any point, did you get involved in any swift water rescues or anything to do with like cars stuck in canals? Yes, I did one swift water rescue. Um, unfortunately, it was unsuccessful and we recovered a body uh, four days later. Wow. Okay. It was I during have... Hurricane Irene that happened. Wow. I have some experience with not me personally out in the field, but me with emergency communications regarding flood events. So in the Southern Arizona area, we have uh, very dry weather, but when it mm -hmm. rains during monsoon season, and if the ground gets saturated enough, if it continues to rain, then that ground can't hold any more water. And then the new water just slides right over it. And we end up in flash floods. And these flash floods mean you can't, you shouldn't be around any like wash areas or anywhere alongside canals or anything like that. And our terrain is situated in such that the water in some areas will flow over the freeway and it gets pretty treacherous. And in those circumstances, we'll have people just driving down the frontage road, but the water is completely covering everything that they don't see the canal. And mm -hmm. they, they think they're getting off the road and they end up diving headfirst into a canal. So that's one of our, without a doubt, the times I've been involved in an emergency operations center that's region wide, there's always swift water rescues involved. Okay. So our podcast is, is unique and I'm really excited about it, Thomas, because rather than just talking about tropes and necessarily, we are kind of serving as a resource for other writers. Um, I've been wanting to do a series where, you know, so you want to write a seance. So you want to write about the end of the world and pulling people from the industry and interviewing them so that writers can actually take what we say and maybe apply it to their own, their own writing. So for us, you and I are going to be talking about emergency response for certain kinds of mass emergencies like alien invasions and uh, virus outbreaks and all those things, things that you see in a lot of speculative fiction scenarios. Um, I'll start this off, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> clear my throat there. I'll start this off by saying this isn't an unusual exercise that we're going to do. And in fact, if anyone's curious, they can check out the FEMA website. Uh, they have a disaster preparedness plan for a zombie outbreak. So in the event of a zombie outbreak, they recommend that you travel light, you have a family plan, you stock up on your supplies, and you look for safe areas. And what's even more entertaining is that they partnered up with the movie Zombieland as part of their official promos. So the great thing about combine and one of the biggest challenges I have in the world of public PR is getting people to stop what they're doing and listening and especially for things that are really important like fire safety drowning awareness that kind of thing but if you can apply those dangers into a fictional scenario that therefore opens up the world to people who can like okay that's I can digest that you can also be teaching them at the same time about what they do so, Thomas, before we unpack the fictional, let's go through the ordinary. So can you walk me through what a standard emergency call looks like? Yeah, emergency call is not what you see in these popular TV shows. So when I try to explain my job to somebody, they have this preconceived notion that it's this exciting, you know, show where it's life and death all over the time. It's not really like that. So... A standard response is you, somebody calls an emergency number, they find out the information they need, and they dispatch, say, the local fire department. So what happens is um, there's a notification at the department, 
and they send the appropriate apparatus or vehicles to deal with that issue. And then, so when you're getting, so let's say you are at the station mm-hmm. and you get the call, you get, do you always get ducked out in the full gear for every call or does it depend on the situation? It's completely situational. If you're going, say, to a medical call, which is the majority of your calls, you have that gear with you, but you don't wear the entire set if you're going to medical call. Okay. So then in the case of a fire, that's when getting dressed is part of the rollout process. Like you need to be dressed on the fire truck before you leave for fire emergencies, or do you get dressed like on route? It depends on what your definition of getting dressed is. You would put your your um, your boots, your pants, and your coat on when you're getting on the truck. Okay. Then you can possibly put on your air mask without the hose attached to it. That's a very smart thing to do. But your helmet, you cannot put that on in the truck because there's not a head. Okay, gotcha. And when you get to the scene, let's say it's a, uh, let's talk fire. You get to the scene and it's a fire situation. What is the first thing you do? First thing you do is usually the lieutenant will report back to dispatch what kind of situation they have. And if there's any um, entrapment or people that are accounted for or what we call um, exposures, which is, is there a building nearby that is in danger of catching fire? Okay. And if there is any of those scenarios, they will send in extra um, personnel or equipment accordingly. Gotcha. So for smaller fire, is it a matter of assessing if there's anyone in the building, whether or not you go in, can you, can you address a fire without ever going inside the building? You can. Um, usually if the fire is so out of control or it's too dangerous to send anybody in, they will not send anybody in. And what you see on television shows is that they always send somebody in. That's not always the case. If there is somebody inside, they will make an effort to try and rescue them. But if it's one of those situations where you literally cannot risk the lives of everybody in your crew, to go in and try to save somebody, they will not send somebody in. How often did you train for these kinds of scenarios? Did you have like a mock building that you would smoke out and then you would go in and like practice going through smoke? Yes. Um, when you do your initial fire training, they actually send you into a concrete building that has obstacles and it has things that are on fire inside of it. Okay. And is it timed? Like, how do the, how do you assess success when you are doing these kinds of trainings? It's it's time, but also you have an air tank, and the goal is to put out the fire, rescue the mock victims, which are the exact same size and weight as an actual person. Mm. And the goal is to put the fire out and get the victims out within a certain time period, and you want to have at least 25% of your air reserves still in your tank when you leave. What happens if there's less? Does that mean that in the real world situation, you'd be in trouble? Yes. Um, once your tank is empty, they rate it for 
the manufacturer states you have 30 minutes worth of air. In an emergency situation, you have 15 maybe, if you're lucky. Oh. They have other tanks that are rated for one hour. I have never seen anybody get more than maybe 35 to 40 minutes out of one hour tank. It's the equivalent of running two miles in the hot sun when you're in there. And your gear weighs 75 pounds plus. Okay. Have you ever been involved in scenarios where there was like a train derailment or there could have been ex- like not explosives, like a bomb, but like there was potential for things exploding? Yes. I took a um, college course in vehicle extrication that dealt with Amtrak trains and hazardous cargo trains, etc. So you know, it's something you train for. Um, it's something that a lot of volunteer departments don't train for very much because the course is very expensive, but the paid squads train for that on a regular basis. Okay. And what kind of awareness do you need to have for different types of like chemical exposures? Okay. So on the sides of all of your transportation vehicles, you'll have a triangle placard and it will have a four digit number. Usually that tells you, basically what cargo is in is being carried and then you you have a guidebook or some people have an app on their phone where you type in that number and it tells you the response to um whatever scenario you're facing if it's a leak or spill or some kind of um container rupture it tells you how to best approach that who to call and how far away you have to evacuate general public so okay. that's very helpful. That's great. So that's nice to know that you have a resource on hand to kind of guide you because I always think that all the training in the world and the world's always changing to yes. constantly be on top of everything all the time. At least, you know, you have resources on site you can reference. You do. And there's also an 800 number you can call, but I'm not going to give it out um, for first responders that if mm-hmm. you can't find the information you need, you call them, you give them the the um, four-digit number, and you tell them what's going on, and they tell you the exact approach to mitigating the hazard. Gotcha. Thomas, do you miss firefighting? Of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was something that was my life for 22 years. Gotcha. So I've had the privilege of working with some amazing firefighters and police officers. I've participated in some region-wide um, emergency tests. Uh, for example, what would happen if multiple things were happening in your region? If there was like a plane crash, meanwhile, there's a shoot, like a shooting over here and a flooding over there. What would you do with the resources we currently have? And, and these tests are so important because are our agencies able to communicate to each other effectively, you know, figure out their respective duties in um, complementary to each other? So my experience for emergency communications is usually all in, always involved as part of an emergency operations center, and I would run the joint information center portion of it, which means I'm working with all of my agency um, communicators to make sure that we're letting the public know what to do in an emergency. So if we think about where is the media getting their information, especially if like you watch TV and you read books about these mass situations, like how do they know where to tell 
the public about where the shelter is, right? All of these right. things, if done correctly, is a correlated effort among all these agencies. So that's what I get to do. Um, I run the website, social media, emergency co contacting platforms, all those things. And from a communication standpoint, it has to be so clear how you communicate to the public because if it's stressful, if it's you know timely, people need to receive the information correctly. So we're talking fifth grade reading level, no time for jargon. This isn't the time to like show off your five paragraph essay, you know, experience. No. You got to throw that stuff out the window. <laughs> um, one of my biggest critiques is anytime I see a disaster movie or a book and the communications are too lengthy, I'm like, nope, that can't happen. Same for news articles. It has to be, you have to make sure that you don't bury your lead and people know exactly where to find your information. So now we are going to talk about the fictional um, application of what we know. So from our respective perspectives and experiences, let's break down what would happen in these popular sci-fi scenarios. I started with a virus outbreak. I guess you could also say zombie outbreak because some people have linked that to a virus outbreak. This I felt like was a good start because we could look back at the last three years as far as like what would happen in the event of a virus outbreak. So what are your thoughts on this? Again, my thoughts are it doesn't follow popular movies. A lot of people bring up like the outbreak movie. That movie is completely dramatic and does not represent reality at all. Mm -hmm. However, an older movie called The Andromeda Strain, which came out in 1971, is perhaps the most accurate representation of what would actually happen. Can you, uh, for those that haven't seen it, can you walk us through the gist? Sure. So aliens come down and they bring some kind of disease or toxin or something, I don't know what it is, and it affects a whole ton of people. And what they show you in the movie is people with hazmat suits that are self-contained are getting people and they're bringing them to a secure location where they have these rudimentary suits that are built into the building where they have no contact with the actual patient. And that is exactly what happens in, in scenarios where there's a communicable disease that um, you can get through um, airborne or by contact. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the, uh, knowing that we have all these expectations from fiction and then seeing the reality of how COVID response was laid out, what were your thoughts on, on that? On the COVID response? I, on, co on COVID, yeah. Yeah, I thought it, the response was wholly inadequate, to be honest with you. If they had gone and done their standard operating procedures when there is an outbreak, which include containment of the pathogen or um, of infected individuals, quarantining those individuals, isolating the individuals and the infection, and then decontaminating whatever surfaces were affected, it would have been over and done with within probably two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. There's always these conspiracy theories that all government agencies are part of this huge orchestrated understanding. And it's amazing how, how much we can seem to pull off because there's so much secret stuff we're doing. But, <laughs> and I can't tell you whether or not that's true or not. I don't have clearance for that level. But I will say 
when it came to coordination of getting the word out, I realized how messy it is. So from the local government perspective, we are in charge of, um, you know, businesses and uh, police. And so a lot of the the directives that came from the White House and subsequently, you know, state governments affected how we did those things. Like, you know, with businesses not being able to allow so many people in there and, you know, that kind of stuff. Also, how do you, how do you enforce a lot of these things that were being, right. um, you know, required for COVID? Mm-hmm. And so we from the local gov- government level would wait to find out what were those directives in the first place. And we would receive that information when the public did as we're receiving direction the public is going what are you doing about this you know all right i'm supposed to do this with my business i'm supposed to do this with my school what am i doing and we're like ah we <laughs> give us a minute <laughs> and we I, I would say the best thing that we did that i think i can definitely recommend for anything like this whether it's a virus a zombie anything that has to do with disseminating information from the top down where all levels of government are involved is that it's so important to have a committee uh, mm-hmm. that is right there, ready to talk about all the different angles, which is what we did. We had legal, we had finance, we had um, our, our public safety there because so many things concern public safety. And we were like, okay, what was the directive? What can we do? What, how do we need to respond? And, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. And you can say all these things about what we think we should have done back then. But when you're in the moment and you honestly don't know what to expect and you have to think of all the risks, uh, I would say probably that's the best approach you can take. And you're not going to you're not going to please everybody. Well, you bring up an interesting point, because before I retired, I made the rank of lieutenant. And I found during the course of my career that the greatest challenge you have in public safety is communications. Mm-hmm. That is where you get a lot of bottlenecking and people trying to make it, you know, suggestions and call in the right resources. And that's where everything kind of takes a pause mm-hmm. and slows everything down. Yes. And it helps to have that, those logistics figured out ahead of time than in the heat of the emergency. Yes. Exactly. Like I, someone could probably write a whole story about an emergency situation where everything breaks down. Like it's, I think about Marvel and all these things where everything is so perfectly executed, right? The orchestration, I say, where people just know where to show up and all that stuff. And I'm like thinking, oh my God, I could think of so many like emails going back and forth and people are going, wait, what am I supposed to do? Hold on, get legal involved, <laughs> you know? I can tell you some scenarios, not mentioning any names, of course, mm-hmm. where we had fire departments show up that were volunteers. Nothing against volunteers. I think they're great, but they are not run the same way as paid at all. And I've known and seen volunteer departments show up to a fully involved structure fire and there's no water in their trucks. Oh, wow. That so what do you is do in problem. that situation? In that situation, you have to do a modern day bucket brigade where you have tanker trucks filled with water, dropping off water at the scene and going and sourcing it from however close the nearest body of water is or fire hydrant. Wow. Which is, that that takes time away. Yes. (laughs) 
okay. that really slows things down. And it puts the public at risk because you have emergency vehicles running lights and sirens in both directions. Mm-hmm. And did, I guess the best takeaway is, did they learn from that situation so it didn't happen again? One would hope, but that not, doesn't always happen. Yeah. Alien invasion. This is our next one. It's kind of an interesting one. Although I, the more I thought about it, I was like an alien invasion, assuming it's like an attack on earth. And it would be like a similar situation as if we were getting attacked by another country. Mm. So what, what would, what are your thoughts on the alien invasion scenario? Well, when you sent me this list of topics, I thought this one's going to be the interesting one. So this is one I don't think I've ever been asked this question before. So um, I suppose it would depend mainly on the type of invasion. If it's peaceful, there's not really a whole lot of, of fire and EMS involvement. But I imagine it was a takeover. You would involve the military, the fire department, the police, the EMS. You would involve everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so one of my manuscripts, I I envisioned an alien invasion, and I tried to, I, you know, who knows what would actually happen in the event of a real one. But I tried to go, okay, knowing what I know about the industry, how would the response be? And mm-hmm. I think that there's going to be during the invasion, it's going to be very stressful. Um, yes. I imagine the military is going to have their own whatever that they're going to do, right? If there's mm-hmm. even combat during that time, but. If we lose cities, let's say we have Independence Day style, we're losing cities left and right. That's a lot okay. of resources gone. Yes. We lose our uh, New York Fire Department or New York, New York Police Department, assuming the aliens go for the big cities. So mm-hmm. then we have like smaller cities or even rural cities out in the middle of nowhere cities. And my thought would be you have to like kind of create your own encampment outside of these cities because you now your your resources are being stretched okay you know that that's my thought but i don't know if that would is even realistic because that does seem very altruistic and i'm like in this in, in a real emergency is it every man for himself no and that's where it gets interesting because a lot of departments have what's called mutual aid agreements with neighboring departments mm-hmm. so if they're unable to respond for any reason the neighboring department will cover the district Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. So then in this case, it's like, we're going to set up this multi-jurisdictional, multi-governmental campground where you have, I would hope, you know, fire, all all the first responder agencies, medical, um, communications would be vital. And then, um, military levels, depending on who knows what, (laughs) you know, and moving around, um, and trying to figure things out. But then in my story, I was like, my aliens are going to be smart. And then they're going to start targeting these <laughs> camps. <laughs> they really want to take us out. So um, anyway, that was my my scenario. What do you think? Any any notes? I actually took a lot of notes on this topic. Um, it would involve the military for defense. Okay. It would involve fire departments for fire suppression and rescue and building collapse. Okay. It would likely involve EMS if there were survivors. Yes. And it would be one of the biggest events that I've probably seen in my career by far. Do you think, I mean, for us, it's, you know, we can kind of joke about alien invasion, but when we think about countries that are under attack, how, 
maybe and maybe that helps bring it closer to home the idea what how do you think we would respond would it be similar to 9-11 do you think we've learned a lot from 9-11 i think we learned a lot from 9-11 but i don't think we've learned enough if that okay. makes sense okay what where do you think we can improve i think that you can improve your communications you can improve your um pre-event planning that 9-11 kind of made a, a thing out of a lot of times fire departments now will go around and survey their districts to see what the hazards are and the likelihood of anything happening and they write this information down which is great and they should have done this with 9-11 but everybody said oh there's no way the towers can ever fall we don't need to do this mm -hmm. and i think had they done the pre-event planning it would have been an entirely different scenario Gotcha. One of the things I, I really wish we could do more of is just a lot of roundtable exercises cross-departmentally or intergovernmentally or across multiple agencies. One of my training scenarios when I became lieutenant was I went to Goodwill and I bought one of those kid rugs that has the roads and the buildings and stuff on it. Mm -hmm. And I got some toy cars, looked like fire trucks. And I had everybody stand around and say, okay, your fire's here. What do you do? And we responded to the trucks on the on these fake roads and staged them accordingly. I said, okay, what is the best case scenario for doing X, Y, and Z? And what could we have done better? And I would have people communicate via, you know, these toy walkie-talkies to simulate dispatch or truck to truck or people trying to get resources. So that was a very good training exercise. And I know it just involved toys, but you can learn a lot from just hypothetical scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any other notes on alien invasion before we move on? Um, that's one I really don't have a lot of information on and I definitely wasn't ever this never came up. You mean you were all. never part of an alien invasion? <laughs> in my 22 years? No, this never was asked of me ever, which is a very interesting question. You know, I think as you and me being, you know, government or agency related, emergency related, um, do we know the secret behind, you know, aliens in Area 51? And I can say I'm not talking. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still young. I don't want to, you know, say the wrong thing about that. So I'm just, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. So moving on to incoming meteor. Yeah, this is interesting. Okay. What are your thoughts on an incoming meteor? This is what I have actually trained for. Oh, so, is it like Armageddon? Sort of. Okay. Um, the approach to response to this is the same as if we knew a hurricane or another natural disaster was coming. Okay. So that's how it's dealt with. So, um, yeah, go ahead. So, so, what happens with that is the fire department assists the police and military in the immediate evacuation of people from the anticipated impact site and their site around that that might be affected. Okay. How so is easy initial. is that to do? Not very easy. There's a lot of stubborn people that don't want to leave. Okay. And that ends up putting first responders at risk because if you have the general public still left behind, you have to have first responders to assist them in the inevitable. 
Okay. And so that you go through, you clear everybody out. The impact zone is hopefully human free. And then the hit's just going to come. Yes. What happens after that hit? And, and I'm assuming, I don't know what kind of meteor we're talking about. Maybe not one that's the one that killed the dinosaurs. Maybe it's something slightly, something in, big enough. What would your next steps be? Next steps would be, um, hopefully they have turned off all the utilities to that area because when people lose the utilities, they end up, you know, just leaving that area. Okay. Which is some, it's an approach that has been done for a long time. You turn off the electricity, you turn off the water, you turn off the natural gas, you turn off anything that would allow somebody to stay and they'll eventually leave on their own. Your response would be probably clean up. And if there's any kind of fire, you would address that as well. Okay. Yeah. It, it, meanwhile, just thinking about for first responders who are you know doing this like you, you have your mm-hmm. own mental health to deal yes. with like it's terrifying how do you as a firefighter deal with that in general every firefighter will tell you they deal with it the reality is they don't there okay. are some calls that i still think about decades after the fact yeah in fact there's five incidents that happened in my career that I don't talk about Mm. and that's a way of dealing with it is just not talking about it are there resources provided to first responders to help them through that there are but when you're in the fire department or public safety there's this mentality that if you ask for help it's a sign of weakness which Mm. is not the case at all Mm -hmm. um I was one of the stronger members there are also members in my team that were a lot stronger than me and they eventually some of them asked for help and I don't see it as a sign of weakness I see it as part of the job you need to have that support and if you have a problem or you're something you're thinking about you need to reach out and talk to somebody yeah just like you would work out your your physical muscles your brain you have to you have to work on that too and keeping it healthy and processing anything that you need to process yeah that's true and one of the worst memories was i lost somebody in a structure fire a fellow firefighter who had been a firefighter for maybe six months oh wow i'm so sorry for your loss and that's that's tough because then you have do you feel like there's like an unspoken thing where people are kind of aware of these risks so then it becomes like harder for people to talk about it because maybe it's so close when you're going through your initial training, they tell you that your likelihood of getting PTSD or other mental health issue is 100%. Wow. And okay. they try to screen people and they only pick the strongest people to join and, and get paid, but it's, it's inevitable. You cannot be a human being and do this job and not have some kind of mental health problem afterwards. Yeah. Thank you for trusting me and our listeners with that information, though. I think it's really helpful, especially for those considering a career or maybe in the career and just like listening to the podcast, Mm -hmm. knowing that they're not alone. And this goes to everyone, you know, that's going through PTSD. So with the meteor, we know we're dealing with an impact site, clearing people from the location, the mental health wellness of the first responders that are going through it. 
I found it to be really interesting. NASA has a national near-Earth object preparedness strategy. They have a strategy for before the meteor impacts and after. And before, it's about communications, mm -hmm. internal cooperation. So, okay, start. Communications, letting people know um, what's happening and making sure the information is clear. Then there's interna oh, international, I misspoke earlier, international cooperation, which, you know, you and I talk about. Uh, intergovernmental, interagency cooperation and, and all the complexities that come with that. Then there's modeling and prediction. So the entire time that they're preparing a response, they're also trying to track where the meteor goes. Could you, could you imagine if like you're out on the scene and you're trying to clear out Las Vegas, for example, and then you find out the impact sites, actually LA, you know, and having to shift, like that's gotta be, that's gotta be intense for that time. Then they have a deflection disruption terrestrial which i think is probably like last ditch efforts like we're gonna armageddon this thing and we're gonna <laughs> blow it up you know what i mean we're gonna move it all that stuff and then if it actually does impact what is the response and recovery so then i this is a worldwide thing if we're talking something big enough to wipe out a city mm -hmm. people all over the world are going to deal with it so even if like let's say a meteor hits russia we're over here we're going to start dealing with climate issues um, you know, the darkening of the sun with like dust and debris. Do, do you guys have any, this probably sounds like a really weird question. Do you guys have training on such global circumstances like that? Not, not so much meteors, but natural disasters. Okay. It, you have to move things and people numerous, like a handful of times. It's a normal thing. You can evacuate somebody or a group of people to a specific location and stage all of your supplies to that location. And that location can then later on during the course of the disaster become a, an evacuation zone. Mm -hmm. And people generally don't like being moved more than once. If you move somebody somewhere, they are less likely to want to be, want to be moved again. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's not only is there stress associated with it, but there's a trust factor. Yes. And if they feel like your first call wasn't correct, they might completely stop listening to you entirely. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem you're going to have with a meteor impact is if there's a hospital or nursing home that's in the, in the affected area, that is going to be your biggest challenge. Yes. Getting all those people moved. Exactly. Who do you work with? in situations like that? Like who's collectively getting people up and out? Usually it's the National Guard. Okay. Have you worked with the National Guard before? Like in collaborative efforts? Yes, I have. Um, okay. During Hurricane Irene in upstate New York, I worked with the National Guard for probably almost three weeks. Oh, wow. So in a situ situation like that, I'm assuming you were the local fire department in that situation? Yeah. Or were you, okay. So once they come in, does the, does the hierarchy and command shift? It, so it, it does. You have to establish who is in charge immediately when they arrive. Because if you don't, if, if you don't establish the chain of command during the initial um, response to that incident, it's not going to work out. Okay. And that goes for any incident, regardless of size. During that three-week period where you were working on that joint effort, 
did you expect like how was it for you compared to like normal operations was it was it really clear in the communications that was being given to you or was it more confusion what would what, how did you experience it my experience was we didn't know the effect that hurricane irene was going to have um the weather reports were conflicting they said we were going to get it on this day or this day and it ended up lasting longer than they anticipated then there was an incident where somebody had called the emergency number and said that a local dam had broken. Oh, wow. So we are in the middle of this incident. There's people that are have to be rescued out of their houses. There's people that are being rescued out of swift water. There's cars that are floating downstream. There's just chaos everywhere. And we're evacuating people and helping them clean up. And this call comes in and there's a thousand people panicking and they're trying to get out of the pathway of this so-called um, dam failure, which didn't actually happen. There was no problem with the dam at all, we found out, but it created the worst case scenario I've ever seen in my entire career. How how effective do you think the communications was to the public for that situation? As you know, directing them or relieving them of concerns or just clarifying information? From the moment that hurricane um affected, it was just a complete meltdown of communication and everybody had an opinion of what to do and people went to social media instead of listening to the news or to their local officials. So everybody had a everybody had a different opinion on what to do, including the people in charge. Mm -hmm. But it, it's hard. It's hard when it's a big enough uh, event that mm -hmm. there's panic and people and you get lost and it doesn't help that social media algorithms, you're, you're shackled by them. You can't yes. just make sure like in this instant emergency situation, every single one of my Facebook followers is going to see this post. Like I, I can't, I'm unable to do it and it's scary. So then you have to like resort to other means. Like if you have texting um, abilities to people, but then that's subscription based. So yes. it's, it's, it's so tricky getting the information out to everybody. The biggest challenge was the misinformation that was put on social media. Okay. That became our biggest hurdle because I remember being out in the field with my crew and I was in charge and people were coming up to me and saying, did you hear about this? And I would say, no, I didn't. And they would say, well, this is going on and you have to deal with it. So that would then tie up resources because I'd have to call dispatch and say, we've had a report of this. Do you have anything, any information about this? Is this occurring? And they would have to then send somebody from public safety to go find out if it's happening or not. Oh, wow. And so th that that's timely. Yes. And when you are chasing down red herrings that don't exist, you're tying up resources that could be used for legitimate purposes. Gotcha. Yeah, it was, I think, a really close, well, no, I would say the the most the closest natural disaster i've had to experience was during the pandemic mm -hmm. our entire mountain caught fire it was okay. 
uh, it was a fire. It was, it was a lightning storm and it struck the, the, and it was really dry leading up to that. So you look at our mountain that's right next to our city and the entire wall of it was up in flames and we just watched it spread. And usually the way that, were you ever involved in wildfires? Did you ever help them out? I do not have any training in that at all. Okay. Yeah, that one was really interesting because I guess, um, and I'm not an expert in this, this is me kind of learning secondhand. In in the case of wildfires, it's not, the goal isn't to put out the fire, it's to keep it from consuming, you know, residential homes and, you know, developments and stuff like that, but that there is a reason for wildfires and there's a benefit to them from a, from a natural perspective. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know how they could even try to put this thing out in any way. It was huge. But one of the most impressive things I got to watch was they would bring um, planes carrying this like f- uh, fire retardant material. Yes. And yes. they would dump it. Mm-hmm. And it was ab- amazing because they had to work with pilots. They had to bring in uh, firefighters from all over the nation to take. It was called the Bighorn Fire for those that want to look it up. And what blew me away was that the fire got so big, it started to threaten the village that was up there and the little town it's Mount Lemon is the town. And I watched camera footage. And then when you're talking about like, you know, people having to go investigate, you know, out in the middle of nowhere to make sure that what they're saying isn't a red herring. In this case, we had cameras and we were watching, like, I think it was like the watchtower section of of that village. And you Mm -hmm. saw the fire come out and take out the cameras. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, we've lost that town. And Mm -hmm amazingly enough that town was saved and it's because the resources were reserved for guarding those things and along the bottom part of the mountain too before it crept into the city completely was able to keep it away but that was the most amazing joint effort I'd ever seen visibly very thrilling um terrifying I think I had a mental breakdown because I was convinced that the fire was going to come off the mountain and burn up the whole city did not and now it's been like two years this, that, that mountain is so green. It's so beautiful up there. So, you know, something terrible and horrifying resulted in something really nice. Well, you bring up an interesting point when it comes to wildfires, because everybody thinks if you're a firefighter, you do all types of firefighting. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. There's wildfire firefighters, there's airport firefighters, and there's people like me, they're just general firefighters. And there's a whole different set of training and experience that goes into each one of those different things. All right. Any other notes before we go on to nuclear fallout? Uh, No. Nuclear fallout? I actually have an entire page worth of notes for this because we train on this all the time. I figured. I figured there's like so much history to this. Okay. Tell me what you got. Okay. If there's nuclear fallout, you're going to see a specialized response from hazardous materials teams, fire departments, and most likely there will be some sort of military and government involved um, specialty response to this. Okay. And you're also going to see an immediate fire EMS activation. What does that look like? You're going to, the fire department and the EMS are going to be the first people there. guaranteed um it's their job to go to the scene assess the scene see if there's any patients and they are the eyes and ears and they are going to make the reports they're going to determine the the rest of the response okay um 
the first and foremost, the fire department would, would um, set up hazmat teams to decontaminate people. Um, EMS would transport victims to specialized care. And that would be a hospital that is um, set up to deal with radiological fallout. And I don't really know of any offhand. Okay. Um, outside of New York City. Your bigger cities definitely would have that. Your smaller towns are not 100% sure. Is that, are you, are you talking about like after the nuclear fallout, like it's happened and this is the yes. reaction? Okay. Yes. If something happened, it's already been pre-planned for the response. Gotcha. Okay. So it, it's a, it's a gigantic volume, multiple volume response that's already been planned out and tested. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of literature on the FEMA website about preparing for a nuclear explosion. And there's mm -hmm. some information for the public as far as what they can do. So yeah. I guess here's, okay, here's what people should expect in the case of a nuclear fallout. So a bright flash can cause blindness. Yes. Blast wave can cause injury and damage to structures several miles out from the blast area. Mm -hmm. Radiation can damage cells of the body. Large exposures can cause radiation sickness. Mm -hmm. Fire and heat, of course, can cause death, burn injuries, and damage to structures. Yep. And then the electromagnetic pulse can damage electronics several miles off from the, the detonation, mm -hmm. which means like you lose your internet, you lose your, your contacts to the outside world sometimes. And then follow- Sorry, you would also you lose utilities with EMP. Ah, Okay. Because all of your utilities now are these quote unquote smart utilities. Mm -hmm. So they're not so smart in the sense that if you had a nuclear blast or an EMP attack, it would take it out immediately. Gotcha. So if you if you're really proud of your smart home and you have all these, you know, smart items and objects, they're all done in the case of an EMP. It's over. Gotcha. And then the fallout is radioactive. So yes. any visible dirt and debris raining down can cause sickness to those who are outside. So the mm -hmm. biggest advice that they give the public, and it's funny because it's always like, okay, you know what you're supposed to do as a professional in this situation, but then what does the general public get informed on? Their first thing they need to do is they need to get inside to avoid radiation. So brick or concrete are best. Mm -hmm. They need to remove any contaminated clothing and wipe off or wash unprotected skin if they were outside. Uh, a car does not count. You can't hide in your car. It's got to be a building. And then you have to stay inside for 24 hours unless local authorities provide other instructions and then have a battery operated radio uh, because you won't have other means to listen to the news, but that would be your way of getting information. Does that check in with kind of now you now arrive on scene and people are a bit hiding out and now you've got to communicate with them, right? Mm -hmm. That's true. Do you go walking around knocking on doors? How do you communicate with them? Usually you drive down streets and there's a broadcasted message that's read out on loudspeakers. It's pre-recorded. Oh. That is usually your response whenever you're responding to any incident that's of mass scale. And are these kinds of things like multilingual for like um, diverse communities and stuff like that? In your bigger cities, yes. How often do you work with, because we're talking about radiation sickness and obviously all these scenarios, there's going to be injuries. How closely do you work with hospitals and medical professionals? 
all the time. All the time. It's a, uh, I would say in my 22 years, I've probably gotten trained in this at least 10 times. Okay. So Since the Cold War, this has been uh, a scenario that we train happily for. Wow. Yeah. I, and I definitely understand that. I know in my, um, the, in the city, the, we have the horns still from that yeah. era. They're on like street corners and that was what they were used for. They never got used since and they've been rusting in the sun, but I imagine they would be very useful if something like this were to happen again. I can't okay. tell you the details, but I know that New York city has radiological detectors set up. Okay. And they monitor the radiation level on a minute-to-minute -minute basis throughout the city. Wow, continuously. They're yes. always watching. Wow. Mm -hmm. See, the things see, the things that you learn, right, in first yeah. response as far as, like, what people are doing to, to keep us safe. Do you have any other notes on uh, nuclear fallout? I have a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, Go ahead. There's a, there's a different approach if it's thought or if it's an actual terrorist attack or thought to be one there's a completely different scenario you have to follow okay and we talk a lot about dirty bombs which is an explosive device that um is coated with some kind of possibly radioactive material and people get really scared over this thinking that it's a nuclear device it's not it's just a device that just spreads radioactive material for a short distance and that radioactive material is only dangerous for a couple of days okay and then the, based on the half-life it will just sort of resolve on its own but terrorism likes that because it's something that scares a lot of people and gets a lot of people's attention so the goal in that would be mass panic which is something that the fire departments are not good at um mitigating historically that would be really hard to mass panic is like i feel like it's outside of the fire department's ability to fully contain because you have it's all over the place and you have your jurisdiction and you also have the emergency that you're dealing with mm -hmm. so that would be probably my <laughs> i would probably be more i'm probably more involved at that point because it's like how do you get information out in a way that informs, doesn't overexcite or cause panic, but you also have to be watching misinformation and yes. hopefully like your corrections are found just as easily as the misinformation. And the other problem we have with terrorism is that usually there's an incident that is planned that occurs. And then they have what's known as secondary devices, which are smaller incidents that will occur that are set up to either disable the response by public safety or target first responders specifically. Oh, wow. So it's something that you really have to keep an eye on. And they teach you to basically survey the scene and to look for hazards and look for problems. But at the same time, you have to be on high alert, looking at people and looking at their actions and looking for others that are waiting for your arrival because you are the intended victim. What's interesting is the last couple of years of my career, I actually had a bulletproof vest on when I went out to some calls. Oh, yeah. Really? Yes. 
Yeah, I had that... to put a bulletproof vest on over my fire gear in, in a couple of situations. It's amazing because you talk about, or we, in the you know, general we, we talk about how fire and police have their own separate, you know, area, their fields, but it mm-hmm. feels like it's blurring now, um, especially because, yeah. you know, police wear, you know, bulletproof vests and now you have to. There is a city I worked where I, I taught um, an EMT class. Again, I'm not going to mention the name, but the general public um, doesn't like any form of government there. So the highway and sanitation workers have to wear a bulletproof vest to work every day. Oh, wow. Yeah. There okay. are parts of this country where if you work for any form of local government, and sanitation is a government service. You have to have a bulletproof vest on when you go to work now. Wow. Okay. Well, all right. In the interest of time, I'm going to move on to the next one, which I actually I struggled with. So I'm curious. Did you start Rise of Machines? Did you have Did you have anything for this one? No, actually, no. The only <laughs> thing I could think of was that it would do. Depends on the size of the machine. Okay. If it's a small machine, it's easily, easily remedied. Depending on the scale, it would involve a mix of fire department, police, EMS, military, and in extreme cases, governments. Mm-hmm. And in the fire service, you are taught that if there's a machine or some kind of um, car or anything that's out of control, and you need to stop it, you deny it utilities or fuel or mechanical propulsion. Okay. That's all I have on that. (laughs) (laughs) All all I could think of is there's a separation between private sector and public sector, and there's a rise of machines. My first question is like, where did it come from, right? Like, I feel like I would be hearing from a source that this has become problematic. I guess it have to be almost like invasion level. I'm guessing because if the machine rose, it had to have risen from like I'm guessing a lab. <laughs> you know, it started somewhere. Maybe our society has changed enough where we have like enough AI robots running around, and then suddenly they turn tail, uh, you know, and not turn tail, but they turn around and they start attacking us. I would hope up to that point that there were protections in place as far as, you know, um, regulations that keep them from trying to kill humans. But of course, you know, when has that stopped anything in in the real world in fiction, right? Um, There is, there I have been to industrial accidents where people have been injured by machines. So that is, something that can happen i don't see it very often because we have osha regulations that yes. kind of mitigate a lot of those hazards yes but they do still they happen sometimes so that was my take on the response to that but it's something that i've never heard of okay all right well then in in that case knowing what we know about real world first response careers and how we respond to like these mass emergency situations how do we feel about our preparation for any of the things we've just talked about? Okay. Um, public safety is well prepared for the scenarios you've mentioned. Um, alien invasions I've never heard of. Meteor impact, we are very prepared for that mm-hmm. because it's only a matter of time that before there's something that 
that comes from space. The rest of the like nuclear fallout and the virus outbreaks, that's something that we train for on a regular basis. I think my one concern is managing mass panic. And like for instance, I remember taking a class. I forgot what the class was about. I think it was just about mass emergencies. Mm-hmm. And one of them said every single day, this region actually practices their mass exodus. And mm-hmm. just and twice a day. It's the morning commute and the afternoon commute. And he and you can kind of tell how effective those are as far as how it would assist how people can get out if they needed to. Mm-hmm. And immediately, at least in this region, we only have one freeway system and then the rest is a grid and the grid gets pretty clogged. And I, I mean, I'm like, okay, I know that if something were to happen that required us to have to get out, move, all those things, our biggest challenge is how do you get that many people going in a safe way? Because I can see people abandoning cars. On free- I hope not. I'm out. I'm out in the desert. I would hope that nothing happened in the summer. <laughs> if <laughs> if something is going to happen to us, let's do it in December. Okay. <laughs> uh, because I just think about, you know, people who are caught off guard, they're trying to like flee, they run out of gas and they're stuck on the freeway in 101 degree heat. So I might, I think that's probably my biggest worry knowing what I know about our, our traffic jams. All right. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Any last remarks or promotions that you'd like to make? Um, I'm available. If anybody wants to talk about this, I have my website, tomslayton.com. And I had a lot of fun. If anybody else wants me to be on their podcast, I would, I would love to do that. I had a lot of fun. I thank you for, for inviting me. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.